You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 171, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. I'm so excited to release this show. I know it's been fairly erratic with the summer, so I apologize for that for the regular listeners out there, and I hope you've been enjoying your summer months. But this is one of those really profound episodes and discussions and a book that blew my mind. It's Dr. John Abramson. He's been a longtime advocate for, I guess you'd say, honesty and Truth in Advertising with the pharmaceutical industry. He's an expert witness. He's been the author of two books. He's fellowship trained in public health. Uh, he was a practicing physician for a number of years as well in family medicine. And super smart guy. And our discussion today is one that I think, whether you're a physician or not, you're going to be kind of amazed and sort of terrified by this interview. Much of the way we practice medicine, and certainly it's been at least 2000s and probably late 90s, evidence-based medicine, where you have randomized controlled trials that provide the best evidence for what works, interventions, usually medications or implants. You know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon or maybe a cardiologist who's doing interventions with like pacemakers and such. But we use this evidence-based medicine in order to make decisions on what kind of medicines you use to treat someone. For instance, if you have high blood pressure, do you use beta blockers, do you use ACE inhibitors? Do you have pain? Do we use opioids? Do we use non-steroidals? Do we use something else like a Neurontin? And our expectation in medicine is that our data, the information we have, we use to make these decisions, we can trust the sources and the, the trust we place is really in the, our journals. And certainly professional societies are sort of a secondary source and guidelines uh, that come from the either federally mandated or they're ones that set up through professional societies or maybe some nonprofits like American Cancer Society, et cetera. So we rely on these as ways of helping us make decisions on how to treat patients. But what if those institutions, the medical journals, what if they did not actually have the data? What if they relied on the drug manufacturers or the people who are making the implants or whatever it is? What if they relied on their data but did not have access to it? And so they were only shown some of the data, just the data that, you know, you assume the companies would want you to see, which would generally be positive, meaning it shows some sort of positive effect for their intervention or medication. Would that concern you? I was really f- profoundly <laughs> surprised that this sort of thing happens not only occasionally, but routinely. In fact, almost all the time. And that people who do the peer review at these journals, they don't have access to this information, which I think is kind of crazy. I can understand if there's proprietary information that you have to keep 
you know, hidden from your competitors. They don't know how to you know, produce something, uh, medication, let's say. But the thought that what the actual data is, adverse events, those sorts of things, that people who do the peer review don't have access to it, and yet they are making editorial decisions on whether to print a sub, uh, study is a crazy because you know that's actually it's going to affect how you practice medicine. So if you're a patient, you should be really worried that you know things that people seem sure that you should do, well, what is the evidence there? Is I mean, it might be a really good idea, but is it as strong as as, as certain as it as your physician may think? And if you're a physician, you're busy, you don't have time to you know do your own statistical analysis on these journals. You rely on the journals to provide peer review and you assume that they have done the research, the, the peer review process, in order to make sure that the data and the, the whatever the outcomes of the study are are valid, or that you know there's a statistical significance to it that is reasonable, and that it should show some sort of benefit for your patients. To think that that is actually not happening, and that there's actually an economic incentive for the journal to maybe publish things that are not totally true, or not to be as concerned about it as you would think. It's kind of hard to believe, and it helps, I think, explain a little bit more what's been going on the last two years with COVID, where you've seen all this process sort of out in the open, whereas before it really was a behind-the-scenes thing, it was happening, because we'll talk about it during this episode where we talk about a number of drug, drugs that have been uh, manufactured that there are a lot of problems with, Vioxx being one. It was pulled from the market because it caused significant increase in cardiovascular events, heart attacks, and strokes that was actually in the study, but that was not released to the journal. So they didn't see the adverse events. And so they didn't, for the peer review process, they didn't have access to it. They said, yes, this looks like a great drug for uh, pain relief. And it obviously caused a real problem. Maybe it caused 40 to 60,000 deaths. And it's one of the biggest landmark cases against a pharmaceutical company. But these things are happening. And I think I assumed as a physician that, there was a more robust process and the peer view was, I guess, more trusted. And I have a little bit more skepticism now when I see results from various drugs. Like, this arm is better than this arm, and so you should use this these drugs in combination. You shouldn't use this, et cetera. So I have a lot more skepticism now, and it, it, makes, it makes you a little bit paralyzed as, as a clinician to know exactly what to do sometimes. And I really feel for people who are on the front lines in primary care who are trying to wade through this information and you have, you know, a few minutes, you, it's in your journal and says, Hey, this is a good idea to try this drug. Well, maybe it's not a good idea. I don't know. And I think this is something that's going to radically change the way you sort of look at things. The solution of course is, and we'll talk about this during the episode, but is probably not to have a huge reliance on the, on the journals for your peer review, although you would hope they would, but that the fact that they actually have to have publicly available data. And so if all that data is available, anybody can go crunch numbers and see whether what the adverse events are, effects or events are for a certain medication in a trial. And that would be very helpful for, you know, the, not only lay people who can look through this data, just like physicians, but just for anybody. So you know, actually what is good and what's not good. And then what the risks might be. There's obviously a risk to this because people can manipulate that data, but it's being manipulated anyway right now, right? And so one would hope that you'd have various institutions that would form or be created that would be able to look at this data. That's what we initially relied upon with the journals, but there's an economic incentive for them to do certain things and uh, mainly publish positive studies, which you notice if you have a journal. Most studies are ones that have a positive effect, means there's some sort of 
thing they found that is true, that proved their hypothesis, and they go and use that drug or the intervention or whatever it might be. But you can see if most things you do actually don't have an effect. And if that's the case, then you'd expect most journals to have things that have negative results, so or the null hypothesis, so things didn't work. But that's not the case with most journals. And so the reason for that, of course, is there's an economic incentive for them to have positive results in their study, and probably for people to publish things that show an effect. No one wants to publish a bunch of studies that never show an effect because people aren't going to be interested in reading about it. Anyway, all that to say is this, I think, is a seminal sort of book. I think you should absolutely go ahead and, and purchase this. It's fantastic read. I don't know that I agree 100% with the prescriptions and how to sort of fix the problem. We go into a number of them during the show, I think, that are that are helpful. But I think, in general, the, the problem that's laid out by Dr. Abramson is excellent. He has great history with it, very reasonable person. He's not um, a bomb thrower. He just points out what is actually fairly obvious once you kind of look deeper into the, to what's going on. And so I'd recommend the book Sickening. Uh, you can find it at paradox.com slash 171. You can link to or just search, certainly search on Amazon or wherever. Uh, you can find the show notes, of course, at paradox.com slash 171. I do mention at least twice in the show, it's episode 172. Apologize for that. I get kind of lost track here. You know, it's summer, right? Well, this has been a fairly long introduction, so I'll cut it off there, and I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. It really reminds me a lot of when I talked about uh, organ harvesting. It was going on in China. It's the thing that's sort of out in the open, but no one kind of knows about it, so it's kind of crazy. And this is the same sort of situation where something that's sort of fairly obvious and it's out in the open, but no one seems to be talking about it or caring, probably because of the financial interests in various, you know, various organizations that would call it out. And so I hope you really enjoy the show which is The Corruption of Evidence-Based Medicine with Dr. John Abramson. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. John Abramson. He's a 20-year practicing family medicine physician who spent two years as a Robert John Wood Johnson Fellow. He's chaired a family physician residency. He's been on the Harvard Medical School faculty since 1997. And I think a good way to describe him, he's been a definitive thorn in the side of pharmaceutical and device manufacturers through his uh, research and testimony rooting out the, we'll call them obfuscations in their marketing and research. Uh, he's well published in journals, appears uh, in all sorts of prominent print and TV venues, author of two books. The first book being the 2004 Overdosed America, The Broken Promise of American Medicine, and the book we're going to discuss today, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke health, American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Dr. Iverson, so thank you so much for coming on The Paradox. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I was telling you before I came on the air, I really enjoyed an interview you had on another show, and I thought, I got to have this guy on because you really, you explained a lot of things that even as physicians, we don't, we don't understand. I think that's part of your book where you really kind of break it down to like, why, why don't physicians understand these things? Why do they fall for the, you know, why are they duped? I guess in some way of sort of putting it, uh, because it's just an information, as most things, there's an asymmetry in information in lots of situations, right? Just as you are with the, phys- the patient, you know way more about medicine than they do in this case. There might be information that is in another place that the physician doesn't have access to and isn't even aware of. Right. And the, the particularly uh, inimical part of this is that the docs are taught exactly the opposite. They're taught they have the information and all they have to do is go to the medical journals and the guidelines and they'll get the information. And that's not the information. So they're taught to look in the wrong place and not to look in the right place. Why don't you start out? And uh, there are there's way more in the book than we can possibly cover in the show today. I uh, recommend anyone get uh, purchase the book. I'm sure you can get it to Amazon. There'll be a link in the show notes page at 
theparadox.com slash 172. Um, or actually 171, excuse me. But why don't you talk about Vioxx? I think that's an interesting one. And I think that sort of encapsulates all the different, many of the aspects of the problems within pharmaceuticals and sort of how they're marketed and how they're prescribed in, in America. If you could just sort of start with that. Right. So uh, Vioxx is really what uh, changed my career. I was the family doc. I wasn't head of a residency program. I was uh, chair of family practice at Leahy Clinic, a uh, multi-specialty oh, okay. clinic out here. Um, and uh, an hour north of Boston, and I was quite happy with my practice and uh, things were going well. And gradually the journals were turning, were ha having a more and more commercial bent. Um, and I had been a Robert Wood Johnson fellow after my residency. I understood a little bit about statistics and epidemiology and uh, research analysis and started to look at the articles that were coming critically. Um, the hormone replacement issue was a big deal back in the uh, 19, early 1980s. Uh, we were being told as physicians that all, all postmenopausal women without a contraindication should... Uh, be taking hormones to make them healthier based on observational data and marketing. Um, and uh, even after an article in JAMA showed that uh, hormone replacement was associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, the organizations, uh, professional societies were still recommending the use of uh, hormone replacement therapy. And we actually got in a um, a little discussion with one of my younger colleagues and she just wouldn't believe it. She said, uh, I went to a continuing medical education course at my alma mater and the, the, you know, they're a good medical school. And they said women should be taking um, uh, hormones. And uh, at that point I, I said to her, why don't you get the syllabus and let's see. And there was drug money all over it, which she hadn't recognized, but it became clearer and clearer that drug money was directing or influencing our practice. And then came Vioxx. Vioxx is a, called a COX-2 inhibitor. It is in the broad family of anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil and naproxen, um, Aleve. Uh, it supposedly is superior to those drugs because it causes less uh, serious GI bleeds and complications. And that was its selling point. Um, no more effective than the over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs that cost a fraction as much. But there was an article in the New England Journal called the uh, reporting the results of the VIGOR trial. Um, and in this trial, uh, Merck, the manufacturer, tried to prove that it caused fewer GI complications. And one of the things that that trial found was that it caused significantly more serious adverse events that weren't reported in the New England Journal and that it significantly more than doubled in the risk of cardiovascular problems, uh, blood clots, strokes, and uh, heart attacks. And that was not covered, and the New England Journal didn't change their article. And what really flipped the situation for me is that Public Citizen sued the FDA to release the documents from the, that were presented to their advisory committees. And I got to go through those documents. Uh, there was an article in JAMA that had the footnote to those documents. I never would have found them on my own, um, but went through those FDA documents. And it was clear that Vioxx was a, a dangerous, lethal drug. And uh, uh, the deaths weren't significantly increased, but the cardiovascular events were up. The um, heart attacks were five times higher in people who took uh, uh, Vioxx than naproxen. 
And what happened is <clears throat> the New England Journal of Medicine article was published in November 2000. And that became the so-called evidence-based medicine. And docs thought that was, it showed that Vioxx was a safer drug when in fact um, they hadn't reported serious adverse events. They hadn't revo- reported uh, cardiovascular events. Uh, and they, the authors of the article had omitted three heart attacks that would have flipped the statistics. And it, when I realized that was going on, I realized that I couldn't practice medicine anymore, that I, that I had to figure out as much as I could without having any inside line to confidential corporate documents, um, write a book about what's going on and kind of try and expose this. And that's what led to Overdosed America in 2004. And a week after that book was published, coincidentally, Vioxx was pulled from the market. And I was the guy who wrote the last book and suddenly I was on the Today Show and you know, just <laughs> yeah. uh, the media thing exploded. And it was a wonderful ride. And and I got to really talk about what was going on. People in mainstream media were interested and honest. And um, that was a good experience. And then after that, uh, lawyers saw me on TV speaking English. And they started to ask me to be an expert in litigation. And that led to a whole second career as an expert in litigation. And in that role, an expert gets like 20 million documents per case, and you can really figure out what happened, you know, in a way that peer reviewers can't get close to because they don't even get the real data, and nobody gets close to. The FDA can see it, but they won't release that data. And I could figure out what happened in maybe 15 cases, how the marketing um, research had shown what messages should be used to sell the drug to doctors and the public, regardless of what the science showed and how the research was constructed and misrepresented. And I really got to understand what's going on. I got to um, work with the FBI and Department of Justice uh, on several cases as an unpaid consultant, one of which led to the largest fine ever levied in the United States for any matter, the largest criminal fine. Um, And spent about 10 years in litigation and then said, look, this is fine, money's changing hands and some people who are injured either economically or uh, physically um, are getting compensated, but we're not changing medicine here. And took six years to write Sickening and try and tell this story to the public. Yeah, it's well, you can definitely see the clinical investigator scientist in this whole thing, right? That you, you were always that person. As a physician, you're always, you know, investigating crime scenes, <laughs> why someone has something, why they're, they're diseased, right? And right. so this is a bigger crime scene <laughs> that, that you've been investigating, right? Yeah. And, and certainly with your background in, you know, obviously your fellowship, but also just background in medicine and science, you can, you can read things and you can understand them. But again, to your point, you have to have time and you have to have access to the information. So, Correct. Um, so I think it's very interesting things with the Vioxx and reading that article, I, cause that was really, uh, I was in medical school till I graduated in 2000. And so Vioxx was like a big deal because it's a COX-2. I remember talking about the pharmacology that since COX-2, it doesn't have the same, it's a more specific pain relief, right? It still has a pain relief, uh, it's for like cycle oxygenase, but it's not going to cause the GI effects. And that was, you know, I remember that in her notes. I remember specifically that there, of course, what often happens in medicine and in science, right? There's, there's that COX-2 inhibitor, or that that um, it could be somewhere else too that COX two receptor, exactly. and that's what happened, right? It was on a plate, and it just was not recognized because no one looked for it. Right. But you would have looked for it had you had this information, right, to, to start with. It's 
right? That you saw all those cardiovascular effects. There must be something else going on. Yeah, you're being a little too kind because uh, the <laughs> science, uh, the documents from Merck show they're they're public now. I'm not telling to tales out of school, but the Merck documents show that uh, in 1996, 97, the scientists at Merck understood that there was a possibility that it would increase the clotability of the blood, and they designed that bigger study to not show it. And they failed, and it showed it, and then they covered it up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I get. I guess I just was speaking broadly for the medicine, but yes, I <laughs> that they they recognize that. So um, there there are a lot of things to unpack in this, and this I think is a good example of of many of the problems within um, research, within uh, publishing studies, and and I think, and we'll talk about COVID later, maybe. But you're definitely seeing these all these sorts of things at play in public and out in view more than probably before because with the COVID and the, the vaccines and hydroxychloroquine and all these sorts of things, right? All these studies. But with Vox, it was hard for me to understand why a medical journal, New England Journal, would be complicit in in this sort of, I, I don't know if called a cover-up because I don't think the journal probably didn't feel it was a cover-up, but sort of not the rigorous, robust review that maybe their, their readers expect. Explain that, how that works. Yeah, it, it was um, more than complicit. Uh, as I described in ch- chapter one of the book, uh, the editor in the New England Journal is New England Journal's at Harvard, um, at the on the top floor of the library at Harvard Medical School. And um, the editor of the New England Journal called me into his office to try and, um, I felt like he was trying to intimidate me, perhaps there's another word, but from discussing what the New England Journal had done uh, even after Vioxx got pulled from the market, my book had come out and I was getting some press and the medical students asked me to give some lectures. And in one of those lectures, I talked about Vioxx and talked about the New England Journal having been duped. And I think honestly been duped. They they didn't play a role in it uh, by Merck, um, not fully reporting the results of the trial. But when the New England Journal learned about it, they didn't correct it. They learned about it somewhere shortly after February 2001, and they didn't correct it until Vioxx, 15 months after Vioxx had been taken off the market. And you say, wait a minute, what's going on here? The New England Journal is one of the most prestigious journals in the world, and why would they stake their reputation on covering this up? And um, it's very clear uh, that they knew about it. There was a a radio call-in show, the Wall Street Journal wrote about this, in uh, June of uh, June of 2000, and uh, uh, PharmD um, told Dr. Drazen, the editor in chief of the New England Journal, on the radio, live radio, that there were more heart attacks that weren't reported in the New England Journal. That the FDA data had more heart attacks, and he ignored it. He blew it off. Um, and you say, well, why? You know, what happened? How can this possibly happen? This single uh, event that led to the death of 40 to 60,000 Americans. Um, how, how could that have happened? It's got to be an anomaly. Well, it, it turns out that much of the uh, medical journal's income comes from selling reprints of commercially important articles back to the drug companies and having the drug companies give it to their sales reps to hand out to doctors with the imprimatur of the journal on it. And when you hear that story, you think, well, it can't be that much money for them to to misinform the public on purpose. Right. It is that much money. Uh, f- for the Lancet, 
uh, it's 41% of the Lancet's income in 2005, the last year for which data is available, 41% of their income came from reprints. And the New England Journal is probably significantly higher than that. Um, and it turns out uh, uh, Richard Smith, after he stepped down as editor in chief for 12 years of the British Medical Journal, he wrote a piece and he said, I finally get it after I've left this, that it's about selling reprints. It's That's the business. And there's this, he didn't use this word, but there's this sort of editorial kickback where if the journals don't demand the real data and they publish um, commercially biased articles, they make a lot of money by selling reprints of those articles back to the drug companies. And that's a real thing. I mean, we, it sounds peripheral, it sounds conspiratorial, but that's real. And we docs have got to take responsibility for trusting an information system that is corrupted by this conflict of interest that's huger than any conflict of interest that we declare about our own activities. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And I would add to that, when you have a journal, and I, I may mean, just look through my journals, and they're almost all uh, positive results, or, or rarely, um, which would which would speak to what you're talking about, right? You were not going to publish many null articles that show that there's no results and there's no benefit for something, uh, because you can't sell that. No one's going to want to buy that buy that pre that uh, reprint to. And then you're at, then the other question for someone who's not in medicine, like, what are they talking about reprints? Well, when you go and the drug rep comes and says, hey, you know, we got this, they can they can hand you this, hand you the article, right? And that's their, that's how they get the right to that. And I don't know, they pay, what, 50 cents or a dollar for the article or something. But, you know, you hand out a million of them, suddenly it's real money. <laughs> right. And the New England Journal sold over 900,000 of those reprints. It was real money. Uh, and, and almost all of those were sold after they knew that the article was wrong that it had underrepresented the cardiovascular risk of Vioxx. Yeah, that's disturbing. And and the one thing I've recognized more, I want to say the last few years, and I've, when I sort of reflect on it, when I, I've been part of uh, hospital boards, I've been part of, uh, I've been I've run my anesthesia, single specialty anesthesia group, I've been involved in medical societies, and, and then I can observe many of the same characteristics of organizations and groups in general speaking, it, that the number one goal for all these groups is self-preservation. And it is interesting because you think, well, your core mission is, let's say, fighting cancer or whatever it might be. But really your number one issue is making sure you have enough money to pay your staff to keep your, your lights on. And that is always your, the, the fiduciary responsibility is number one. And so you may see organizations that solve their problem and then they find a way to continue on. Um, but that ultimately that is always a consideration, whether it's um, whether it's overt <laughs> or whether it's sort of in the background. They're just not paying attention to it. But I, I think that is that describes a lot of behavior that people may say, "Oh, I'm not biased," but in in essence, you really are because there is that incentive, right? I'm going to publish an article that's going to that people are going to reprint. I mean, there are ten great articles, but I'm going to the ones that are going to be more financially successful. I'm more likely to put through because I can justify it. Say, well, people are more interested in reading about it, so I'm going to publish that right and so you can convince yourself the reason you're doing it is not for not for those commercial reasons that you're being sort of played by someone but essentially that you're you're doing what you think is right and that what your readers want when it's case it may not be actually the what's really happening correct and and i'd like to add another layer to that which is when an article like the vicar trial or any trial gets submitted to a journal for peer review and publication um 
very few doctors understand that the peer reviewers do not have access to the underlying data from the clinical trial, that the only data they have access to is the data, very brief data summaries that are included in the manuscript itself. And there's no way that you can do peer review. I mean, after being in litigation for 10 years, you understand that where the place where peer review really happens is in, in the court, where you have all the data, both sides have all the data and the experts can argue it out and the jury can decide. But why the New England Journal will participate, if not lead the uh, fight against transparency, um, it's a shocking dereliction of duty. They're trusted by doctors and by patients to have the academic discipline to filter and assure the accuracy and completeness of what they publish. And they can't even see the data. It, it's craziness. And you ask folks, um, I'm not gonna tell tales out of school, but when you ask folks, why don't you get the data? I mean, there's this thing called a clinical study report, which all trials, uh, commercial trials, prepare a clinical study report. It's usually a thousand or two or 3000 pages. And it pretty well summarizes the data in tabulated form. Um, and you, they're searchable. You can go through them very quickly. So why don't you, why don't you uh, require the submission of the clinical study report? It's already done. It won't cost any money. Um, and they won't do it because it's going to hurt their business. And the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors won't demand um, uh, submission of the clinical study reports because it's going to be bad for their members' interests. And what we have really is a market failure. And there are no grown-ups to step in and say, wait a minute. If you as a journal are perceived by the public to be um, to be vetting the quality of the information that physicians rely upon, and you're not doing it, then you lose your chance. Someone else is going to do it. Or we're going to step in and, and regulate you or take over the editorial poll. I don't know what, but it, it's just not right. It's it's surprising. I mean, and when I was reading that, I was stunned that I assumed peer reviewers had access to that information. I mean, I think most physicians assume that they have the data. Absolutely. Now, I recognize that peer reviewers are usually practicing physicians or they're academics who have other things in their schedule. And so they're not able to spend maybe as much time going through all the data that, um, you know, that you would in say for a court case, you know, you're going to have, right, you're, right. right, you're going to really right. go through it closely. And so you're, you're going to glean through things, but I would, I would anticipate they would have that, that information. And so I guess the question would be, why wouldn't you just require everybody to have that clinical science report or why wouldn't you have that as an expectation? Is it just because physicians don't even know that it's not a, a problem and so that they don't demand it? Because you would think if you're in the New England Journal of Medicine, you can, you have a lot of market presence. You're not going to lose a lot of business, I would think, if you were demand that, unless they think that, well, there's hardly going to be any positive articles. And so, so there won't be anything for us to publish. I think that the real world is offering you a different answer that the New England Journal is acting in its self-interest, as you mentioned yeah. before, and their self-interest is not to demand the data. And docs don't understand that. I mean, it, when I tell doctors that the peer reviewers don't get the data, they're like shocked, their jaws drop. I mean, what? You're telling me that I'm supposed to practice evidence-based medicine based on uh, articles where the data hasn't been investigated? And the 
you're correct that journals don't have large staffs. I'm sure besides the biggest journals, they run on a shoestring, but it's not hard to go through a clinical study report. Um, and then you could hire um, uh, statisticians internally or externally. And in 10 hours, they could uh, make pretty good sense out of a clinical study report and compare it to the results and the outcomes that are presented uh, in the article. And I don't know what percent, but they could probably get 80% of the way there. You know, it's, it's not like a, you have to study it for a year and a half. It's pretty quick. Sure. And I think, you know, probably you could almost argue that you could make them public anyway, right? I mean, why not have everybody? Because you don't have to have a medical degree to do statistics. Like you said, you just have a statistician, right? So if you made it publicly available, these, this, this data, I don't is it, is there a corp, are there like corporate secrets into that they can't release? I mean, I would think. The corporate secrets are the data. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, the, there's nothing there that. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, if they're talking about how you manufacture a pill or what the coating's made out of, you, you know, you don't need to know that, but it's not, yeah. it's not there and they could redact the clinical study report. Uh, parsimoniously if they needed to, but that's rare, but they could do it. I'm not opposed to that. But it's it's not that the problem is difficult to solve. It's that the resistance to solving the problem is difficult to overcome. Sure. And and I think, you know, to, to the point that we just touched on at the very beginning is the information asymmetry you talk to doctors, they don't know they does, that this is not even an issue, right? So there's, right. so they even know, they don't even know to demand this sort of thing. Let's talk about something similar to this clinical guidelines, because you hear this, you get this all the time from the federal government has a number of task forces that they have clinical guidelines that have a bunch of physicians, usually academics or researchers or things like that on these that say, Hey, you should, you know, blood pressure is X, you need to treat it with this. And this sort of your algorithm to go through. And then you have lots of nonprofits, American Diabetes Association, American Cancer Society, you know, the, uh, uh, American Heart Association, there are scores of these, right? That how yeah. and that, and most of the specialty societies have the same things too. Like, you know, I know the anesthesia, we have our own for ASA guidelines. I, I guess explain the guidelines process because I mean, now that we see what the journals like, well, I know they're relying on the journals for their, for their guidance. So that's part of the problem, but it gets even deeper than that, I think. It sure does. Um, the evidence-based medicine people originally starting in the early 90s advocated teaching doctors how to read journals and come to their own conclusions about the validity of uh, the published articles. Now, they didn't know that the the data hadn't been uh, vetted by the peer reviewers, uh, but that's what they recommended. Now they recommend that docs don't have enough time or expertise and just go straight to the guidelines. Well, the guidelines are just a compendium of the published articles, the data, the experts who write the guidelines do not get the data either. And I had uh, firsthand experience with this. The US uh, Preventive Screening Task Force is one of the most respected guideline organizations, if not the most. <clears throat> and I found an error in uh, the recommendation for statins. They, they doubled the benefit of statins. Um, and the error was based on uh, a misreporting of the results from the Jupiter trial showing that um, uh, Crestor uh, was beneficial in uh, preventing heart attacks. And uh, it may be beneficial, but the benefit was grossly overstated. 
And I got into with a colleague who has worked with the USPSTF and had a conference call with the folks who uh, were responsible for that guideline. And they said, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a mistake. We've exaggerated the benefit. It, you know, it's an honest mistake. And it came out that the way the USPSTF does its research, and this is just mind boggling, is they write to principal investigators of different studies and they say, send us your results. And then they take the results and they put them in the meta-analysis machine and they they get an answer. And the, the person who sent the results in for the Jupiter trial, probably an honest mistake, I don't know, but sent in the wrong results. And they're so unvetted that the results of the Jupiter trial that have not been peer reviewed because the peer reviewers didn't have the data were misrepresented by the principal investigator. And these results were out there from 2016, I think to 2019, before JAMA or before USPSTF corrected them. And there was a correction in JAMA. So the, the, the guidelines are really problematic because not only do they not have the data, but many of the organizations, all of, all of the nonprofits that you just mentioned, Eric, they all take money from the drug companies. Not, none of it is independent, non-conflicting. Um, and the um, Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, um, has taken a strong stand that um, guidelines, they don't go after the data problem, but they say guidelines should not be conflicted. And uh, certainly a minority of the people on guidelines uh, panels, and hopefully very few, uh, can have uh, conflicts of interest. And the chairs and the co-chairs should not have any conflicts of interest. They've taken a strong stand. And out of the Agency for Healthcare Quality Research, there was a national clearinghouse for guidelines. Um, it, uh, I think it started in 2017 and quickly it was getting a lot of hits, like two, 200,000 hits a month. So docs were clearly going there to get the guidelines that had approved, been approved by the Agency for Healthcare Quality Research. Well, the agency realized the research showed that the guidelines weren't following the guidelines for guidelines, and many of them persisted in having these conflicts of interest, but they were being accepted as guidelines. So the um, National Clearinghouse for Guidelines did exactly the right thing. They decided that they would put a header on each guideline and score it for trustworthiness, for its compliance with the National Academies of Medicine um, recommendations for guidelines. So they put this header on about trustworthiness and they got zero funded. Their website went dark, it's gone. It ain't no more. You know, the, 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 whoever the powers that be are, I mean, clearly it's political because it's a government agency, but it's going through pharma lobbying, I'm, I'm sure, I don't have proof, but I'd be, you know, it's inconceivable that it's not. And yeah. they just sank it when they started. All they were telling was how many people, you know, how the guideline comported with the guidelines for guidelines. And that's so radical that it gets zero funded. Yeah. Well, that is a classic example of, I, of, I guess, public choice or a theory and, uh, and regulatory capture, right? You yeah. have industries that, yeah. that, you know, no one understands them except people who are in the industry. And of course they're from the industry. And so they're the ones who write the rules and they want to, set the guidelines and you know the the structure of things and so you get exactly the results you'd expect and of course if you have more money you're gonna have more influence in washington certainly and let me just interject for one sec 
I think as we talk about this, it's really important to remind people that the drug companies have a single responsibility, which is to maximize the financial returns to their investors. And their scientists and um, executives are in the action on steroids with stock options. So their income goes up when the stock value goes up. And that's their job. And that's what they're going to do. And they're going to push as hard as they can, just like a two-year-old is going to push as hard as he or she can until they're stopped. And the problem is not that the drug companies are pushing too hard. The problem is that we don't have any guard guardrails because it is their job to push too hard. Absolutely. Right. You, I mean, the, the guardrails we assume that were in place are the where you get the non-biased information or the journals and these guidelines, right, that are built upon these journals. And and then I suppose secondarily the FDA and CDC, which are clearly well not CDC so much, but the FDA, which is clearly captured by the industry as well, right? I mean, that, there's no doubt about that. Right, but there's it's important that the FDA's job is just to approve drugs and name their indications. So if a drug is better than placebo and doesn't have adverse events, the FDA will approve it. The FDA tells doctors what drugs they can prescribe, but it doesn't tell what doctors what drugs they should prescribe. For that, you need sure. health technology assessment, and the United States is out there alone among wealthy nations without having any health technology assessment, so we turn over the so-called knowledge about these drugs to private industry. So it's interesting because, you know, when I was in medical school in the late 90s, the big, huge push was evidence-based medicine, EBM, was that is the way we practice medicine. We used to, you know, in the dark ages, we used to practice it based on experience on, um, you know, observational studies and just guessing and seeing what works with your patients, which works pretty well. I mean, it does work pretty well. Yep. Um, but you, you obviously want to have, you want to have better evidence because anecdotal evidence is not always the best. Right. And that's why we have randomized controlled trials. That's why we're supposed to, but when you have a system that doesn't, I mean, it was very interesting going through, uh, when you talk about the evidence medicine and just how it really falls apart because, you have um, you have results, and I think this maybe this comes comes back a little bit to COVID. Only that we're seeing a lot of these sorts of things in in full light of day, as it's sort of we're watching it as the evidence, the science sort of just evolving in front of us. We see these sort of post hoc results uh, instead of you know negative results, right? So you compare things, and our study didn't show what we thought it was going to show, but hey, it showed this else, this other thing. So it actually was successful. Explain how that's like a problem, a problematic way of doing a study, at, like at least reporting a study and a beneficial aspect to a drug. Well, post hoc results are um, what it means is that a study identifies its endpoints. It wants to uh, decrease hospitalizations and deaths from COVID, for example. Sure. Um, and that's the endpoint. And they do the study and they find out, well, it didn't do that, but it decreased primary care visits or it decreased days lost from work or decreased uh, cases, additional cases in the family, whatever. Those are called post hoax findings when you find them. Right. And you can't call those scientific evidence. What you call those is hypotheses. You, you generate hypotheses. And if you find out that uh, it doesn't work to the, whatever the intervention is, doesn't work to decrease hospitalizations or deaths, but it does work to diminish days lost from work, then you set up a study to, to study that and you make that the primary outcome. But that is, as you say, not what's happening. And um, it, it's much more deeper than that though, because the data has gone off the rails with COVID. 
So like for a second booster, the information that the FDA and CDC relied upon for second booster uh, for people age 50 and over came from two observational studies from Israel. Now, observational studies aren't good. I mean, we know that people who get right. vaccinated are different from people who don't, don't get vaccinated and they're gonna be different sure. whether they get the vaccination or not. Um, but the CDC and FDA relied on these two studies from Israel. One was in people 60 and over um, and it showed some benefit for the second booster, um, but it was in the entire population. And the other study was for healthcare workers and the healthcare workers would be a narrower socioeconomic spectrum than all Israelis, a million, two million people, however many were in the study. And the, the study for healthcare workers showed no benefit and significantly increased risk of side effects from the second booster. It showed that. And the first study was in people 60 and over. So the FDA took these two observational studies from Israel uh, and granted uh, approval for the second booster for people 50 and over, even though the studies from his study from the big study from Israel that showed a benefit didn't show a benefit for people under 60. It didn't study them. And when you see that stuff, you just know that, um, you know, you could present this to a first year class in uh, statistics and epidemiology and say, what's wrong with this? And the students would get it. Um, it, it ain't right. Well, it, you know, you spent a, a quite a bit of time in your book talking about behavioral economics and uh, discussing how, and I think this goes into, I don't know if it's marketing, and when it comes to our decisions we make in life, almost all of our de decisions we make are emotional. And right. then we later use reason and to 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 explain away why we did something, right? I mean, right. we, <laughs> you know, it, it, this happens all the time. And this, you make some purchase, and you're like, well, I did it because it's, you know, this is beneficial to me. Well, actually, it turns out I really like that ad or that I know that actress or something, right? And the, ultimately, that's what sort of drew you in, right? And physicians are people, it turns out, yeah, right. <laughs> and human. And, and we are susceptible to these things just like anyone else. And so, and I think also it comes to um, being part of the in crowd versus the out crowd. No one wants to be part of the out crowd. And you have plenty of stories in science where you have, um, and I always forget the guy's name, but the physician from Australia, I think it was, with the um, with H. pylori, right? That's a classic one where he swallowed the H. pylori, trying to tell him this is what caused gastric ulcers. Everyone said, no, you're crazy. It's just stress. And so he swallowed it. He got infection, got really bad. He almost died from, and then proved, basically proved to everyone that actually they've been wrong. But it was being part of that out crowd is really, a, the social stress of that is really tremendous. And so you saw a without a doubt, like with COVID, many positions people had, uh, you had to be part of the in crowd. And I mean, you see this with other drugs too, right? Like um, uh, with insulin, right? You switch to human insulin versus animal. Why would you give pig insulin when you can give human insulin, right? But I think you see all these sorts of behaviors are kind of explained away in many ways by the behavioral economics or you know just this in-out crowd. Yeah, I, I think Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962, was a a nuclear physicist and turned philosopher of science. And he coined the term paradigms. Uh, and what he meant by paradigms are that experts in the process of acquiring their expertise are taught to rely on certain scientific instruments and certain principles um, 
in and and if they in order to become recognized as a full-fledged expert you've got to adopt these uh tools to develop your um so-called knowledge and I think that's right. I mean, it's a very radical proposition. Could, what he's really saying is that scientific truth is sociologically determined. It's not scientifically determined. And I think that goes pretty far. Um, but what's happening here in this case, Eric, is exactly what you're talking about. The docs have worked really hard to establish their position in society, their livelihood, their respect, their self-respect, their identity. Uh, they've worked really hard to establish that platform. And when, when, when that the basis of their expertise, what it is that makes them so-called learned intermediaries is challenged, they get very defensive. They don't want to deal with that. They, they want to go about their work and do what they think is going to help patients. So there's a real uh, cognitive dissonance uh, wall uh, protect to protect them against cognitive dissonance for understanding this. I mean, I left practice when I realized that there was something very wrong with the journals. People now often ask me, do I miss practice? Do I want to go back and practice? Well, I do miss it. I love taking care of people, but I couldn't go back. I wouldn't know how to practice medicine. I know that I don't know how to practice medicine. The docs who are practicing medicine, they've got to believe in this stuff or they can't go to the office and you know, they, they can't go and write prescriptions and do what doctors do. So we're in a real mess. And uh, the only way out of it is for docs to say, okay, we're gonna stop being defensive. We're gonna acknowledge that peer reviews uh, are worthless the way they currently are, that guidelines are not reasonable and we need uh, non-conflicted guidelines that have access to the data. And I think the docs could lead this charge but they've got to be willing to put away their uh, kind of epistemological and existential defensiveness. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you you encapsulated, I think, pretty well in the book where you, you brought the quote from, was it, I think, the Royal Society of London in 1660, where they said their motto was uh, nullius in verba, which yeah. loosely means don't believe it unless you prove it, unless you prove that is true. Yeah. Which, uh, which um, I mean, that's, that is, and you've seen many people in science I think during COVID especially, but it, again, it's just, I think, cause it's just been so all consuming. It, so it's not specifically COVID, but I think it's kind of come out as we're more obvious now, but people just saying, well, that's, if you want to do something, that's fine, but just prove that it works or at least set up a study so we can show that it's been helpful or whatever. And we have basically people practicing observational medicine in many ways, anecdotal medicine. And I would say, and on both ends, I don't, you know, I don't know what that means since there's not usually like two sides to medicine. It's like, it's true, but you know what I mean? There are people who are hydroxychloroquine supporters or who aren't, whatever. Um, that you have people kind of cite studies or meta-analyses that are, I don't know, not very good. I mean, I think actually that's one of the things you talked about as well, meta-analyses. Explain how, I mean, we've kind of described how other studies in general are bad. Explain why meta-analyses are oftentimes not very good. I mean, John Ioannidis talked about that, right, with his with his uh, paper, I think, a couple of years ago. Right. He talks about the um, commercial influence behind most meta-analyses and the methodological problems uh, with the meta-analyses. My perspective is, yes, that he's correct, and that's really important, and we need people who are really um, skilled to sort that out. But there's a bigger problem, which is garbage in, garbage out. When, <laughs> when you're doing meta-analyses on studies like the um, the guideline that I told you about, where the lead author re misreported the results of his 
of his uh, 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 statin study. Um, when you're basing guidelines on public, uh, excuse me, meta-analyses on the published articles that have not been vetted and the peer reviewers have not had the real data, you're just, it's garbage in, garbage out. And you can't cover, you know, you can't uh, put lipstick on a pig. You just can't do it. You can't make it up with more studies that are unvetted. So I, I think if we're gonna take the first step in this, I think I would ask doctors to make an issue out of peer review being non-transparent, not having access to the data. That's step one in getting good information. We're supposed to be learned intermediaries. We're supposed to be uh, representing our patient's best interest by using our skills in uh, understanding science. And we've got to stop hiding behind the moniker of evidence-based medicine and all the other stuff and say, look, we have no idea what those studies show. Release the data. Yeah, and I think when it comes to evidence-based medicine as well, it is oftentimes hard to generalize the, the, the findings, right? You, especially you have, I mean, I think, you know, whether you have enough women in your study, suddenly you say, well, this works, but you don't test on old people or young people or women or men. And suddenly maybe the beneficial effects are more nuanced, right? It may be a certain, a smaller niche population. And this was an example, I think, with the POISE study with the beta blockers, right? Where they're, you know, you want to, suddenly everybody would need to be on a beta blocker. And then you realize like, oh, that's actually a bad idea. But you just start extrapolating, well, certainly this population is similar to the population that study. So I'll just put them on drug X, right? We had this all the time in anesthesia. We're trying to figure out from a perioperative standpoint, what is the best, um, you know, multimodal analgesia or what sort of medicines do we make sure people are continue on or we start them on. And again, it's really hard to sort of generalize something, a study to everybody. And then when you take a meta-analysis, essentially if someone's not aware of the meta-analysis, it's you basically take 20 studies, let's say, and you take all the results and to show if something works and provides some sort of benefit. And then the other part of that too, of course, is not only do the studies conduct it, constructed differently with different endpoints and different populations. But additionally, you may have the 20 studies that showed no benefit that never got published, right? <laughs> and that's the other thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think Paxlovid is the current uh, example of uh, oh, yeah. setting up a study that is studies one population where the drug company could be fairly sure that it would be applied to all populations. So Pfizer set up the study of Paxlovid and in order to get in the study, you could, you had to be unvaccinated and have no evidence of previous infection of COVID. And for those people, there was a dramatic reduction in hospitalizations, I think 90% or yeah, give right. or take. Um, but it turns out because they took people, the study was done on people who were not vaccinated and didn't have COVID, that represents 6% of the population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and right. you know when when finally the results were done for a study that represented the population, it didn't work so well. It worked some, but not so well. Not, it's not the slam dunk that it, you know, that Pfizer's press releases initially uh, made it look like. Yeah, well, and that, that example that would be Tamiflu, right? That's a similar antiviral uh, medication that was, and then once you once you got the real data, it turns out, and and with clinical experience, people recognize that. Yeah, Tamiflu really doesn't seem to do much, and that's pretty much everything. But plenty of side effects too, right? And so that's the that's the other thing that oftentimes we do things, and maybe it has a benefit. You're like, well, maybe it's worth it, but then you have to always take into consideration, obviously, 
uh, doing harm to patients to you with side effects. Absolutely. And uh, Tamiflu is a perfect example because it was uh, the fastidious uh, researchers in the Cochrane Review who realized, had been told by a Japanese pediatrician that they didn't have all the data. And when they realized they didn't have all the data from all the trials, the negative trials that you're right, talking right. about hadn't been published. So, and they were relying on published uh, literature. So when they redid the, um, the Cochrane Review for Tamiflu, I forget when, sometime around 2010, 2012, something in there. Um, but when they redid it, they found that there was no reduction in hospitalizations, no reduction in deaths, and that the net effect was to decrease the symptoms of flu from seven days to six and a third days with, with no benefit in serious illness. Now, you can decide whether you want to take it and expose yourself to serious side effects or not for two-thirds of a day uh, uh sooner getting rid of the symptoms. But the point I want to make here is the company that marketed Tamiflu, um, and now it's available as a generic, so nobody's marketing it, but they did a great job of convincing physicians that they had to quickly get people into their office and test them for flu and get them right on Tamiflu, just like Paxlovid, as you say. Um, but um, when that knowledge was proven to be wrong because it was based on studies that the company was sitting on that were negative, it hasn't changed Tamiflu prescribing that right. much. If you go to the doctor and you say, I have flu, uh, I have flu symptoms, you're probably going to get treated with Tamiflu. And same right. thing. Well, I think most. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, most people expect some treatment or something yeah, right. for the doctor to fix them. Right. Neurontin is a perfect example. I was in. <laughs> I was going to mention Neurontin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was in federal uh, district court testifying uh, on the Neurontin trial. The jury found that Pfizer was guilty of fraud and racketeering violations. And we tore apart. We could do a whole other show on just how they misrepresented one study and hired a PR firm to make 85 million impressions among Americans of this misrepresented uh, jerry-rigged study. And we show that in, in court and the FDA said there's no benefit and their own Pfizer's own consultant said there's no benefit uh, in terms of pain or diabetic neuropathy. Um, in 2001, Pfizer's consultant said that and they went ahead and published a, um, a review article that claimed that there was benefit. And I can tell you how they do it if you want the, to get way in the weeds. But the bottom line is that was in, it, that trial happened in 2010. It all came out in 2010. All that stuff is publicly available. My report is publicly available. You just Google me and Neurontin and you'll get my report. Neurontin is now still the sixth most frequently prescribed drug in the United States. And it's you know mostly for pain and it mostly doesn't work. It's never been approved Makes you for sleepy. It. What? Makes you sleepy, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> if, if that's what you yeah. want, but it's a, probably not a safe way to get to sleep. No, probably not. Yeah. Uh, it is that. What is that, that term? Is that imprinting? Is that what? It, that's the, uh, the 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 psychological term when you sort of you get those uh, those habits formed, and it's hard to sort of reverse those afterwards. Yeah, the economists have a great word for it. They call it stickiness. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, I, there are lots of great, and that's why I really enjoyed your book. I think the the first two parts really uh, finding out about all this stuff was kind of mind-bending. I mean, it's really they're the foundational aspects of the way you practice medicine and the way you're treated if you're a patient is in many ways dependent on this information, which is not great. I mean, I think it's a testament to 
I think, uh, well, I guess I would say the other thing that I thought was real interesting is one of your prescriptions for fixing things, um, which I thought was interesting, is, to, is having study designs that are a little bit different. Partly that instead of just looking at does naproxen work as well as uh, Ketorolac, for instance, uh, now we're going to look at uh, does uh, or does uh, does naproxen work as well as changing your diet and exercising more, right? And that you have non-pharmacological study arms your study in, in not just placebo. So you're just not comparing two drugs. You're check you're checking a drug versus changing your lifestyle or whatever and having people coaching you. H how would that? How do you think that would change things in the way we sort of view health? Because I think in so many ways. We talk about healthcare being lousy in America, and I, I, I'll grant people that that's probably somewhat the case. Um, some ways it's really great, some ways it's not. But I feel like it's just health in America is not very good, and that's a different thing. And that's probably partly because we expect people to fix it with no cost, <laughs> like work or effort. And yeah, and um, I, I think we're affirmatively moving people in the wrong direction by letting the marketers, both in pharma and food and and SUVs, you know, all the marketing pushes people sure. in the direction away from health. But um, let's, if I can switch classes of drugs to talk about yeah, this issue ahead. of a third arm in the study. Um, let's talk about statins. Uh, statins uh, lower cholesterol and um, they do reduce the risk of heart disease. If you already have heart disease and you take a statin for five years, you have a one out of 30 chance of deriving any benefit from taking the statin. And you have a one out of 80 chance, uh, any benefit, I mean, not having a heart attack or stroke. And you have a one out of 80 chance of not dying for secondary prevention. Those are the numbers, non-transparent. So that's the best the numbers are because they haven't sure. been vetted because we can't vet them. Um, <laughs> And if you don't have heart disease, it doesn't reduce your risk of death from uh, uh, heart attack or stroke. And you have to treat around 100 people for five years, uh, people who have a risk of uh, 10 to 20 percent over five years. You have to treat 100 people in order for one to benefit by not having a, a non-fatal heart attack or stroke. Now, I'm not saying whether people should take statins and whether doctors should prescribe them. What I'm saying is <clears throat> that doctors should explain to patients that you have a one out of 100 chance of benefiting from taking this for five years and somewhere around a 20% chance of having side effects. We don't really know what that number is. And let's make the choice together. If you're somebody who likes to take pills and uh, right. then make yourself happy. But the key is <clears throat> that almost certainly getting enrolling people in uh, active lifestyle modification is going to be far more effective than taking a statin. We don't know why, we don't know for certain that it is because that study's never been done. Statins are the most <laughs> widely prescribed class of drugs. <clears throat> They've been on the market since 1987. Uh, that's what, 20, 35 years. Um, and that study has never been done. And it's never been done because anyone who's funding statin studies is a statin manufacturer. And they sure as hell don't want to find out that lifestyle is as good as or better than a statin. <clears throat> so this is a market failure. And it would be very simple to fix this market failure. All you'd have to do is say, look, for any drug that's going to be prescribed to decrease cardiovascular risk, you design your study, drug makers, and you send it to the NIH <clears throat> and at public expense, 
the the ni the we we will add on a lifestyle arm we understand that lifestyle is not in your economic interest drug manufacturer and we won't be heavy-handed you don't have to pay for it but you have to let us know the study is going on so we can add in the public interest a lifestyle arm and then you'd have placebo a cholesterol lowering drug you actually need four arms a placebo a cholesterol lowering drug a lifestyle intervention and both a statin and lifestyle intervention and then right. we would find out we don't it doesn't matter whether statins lower cholesterol it matters whether they reduce the risk of heart disease and then we would find out the best way to reduce the risk of heart disease and people say well that's a crazy study <clears throat> you're just pie in the sky because you can't get people to change their behavior so you know that's stupid but the diabetes prevention program that was publicly funded back in the 90s showed that you can get people to change their behavior and getting enrolled in the intensive lifestyle arm of that study uh prevented high-risk people from getting diabetes far better than medication so that study has been done um, for diabetes medication, a single diabetes medication, metformin, um, but that we don't require, it's just like the, it's just like not having journals require a clinical study report submitted with the manuscript. The solution right. to this is very simple. The cost to the public is very small. And the question isn't how do we rectify it? How we rectify it is obvious. The question is how do we overcome the resistance to rectifying it? And that's not so obvious. Yeah, sure. I mean, th there are so many conditions where you see a patient come in, you're like, well, if you lost 30, 40 pounds, 50 pounds, and we're active, these would not be issues, right? These are not problems. And so that's a lot of what we do is managing people's sort of, uh, I hate to say self-inflicted chronic conditions, but in some ways they are, right? Well, the they're both self-inflicted self and socially inflicted. Sure. I mean, yeah. there's, sure, there's, there's circumstantial yeah. reasons that they occur because of your, your, you know, where your income and your, where you look, where you live and your job situation or lack of jobs. I understand all those things, but the fact of the matter is a lot of them are things that are behaviorally that could be fixed and maybe with some help and intervention. And to your point, when you have a new prescription medication that's costing, I don't know, let's say $500 a month or something, you could probably hire someone to help coach that person for less than that Yes, uh, and absolutely. help with those interventions. And I don't know where the cost comes from, but you know, it, wherever it's coming from, whoever's paying for that, whether it's a patient or the insurance company or whoever, you think it'd be to their best interest to do that versus to pop a pill, right? Um, yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, again, the term market failure comes in because it comes out of the wrong pocket. And the, the people who are, people who are, who are filling the airwaves, the, the bandwidth that is going to doctors about how to practice good cardiovascular preventive medicine don't have um, lifestyle prevention as a primary, um, primary modality. Yeah, sure. And I would say probably maybe at most at fault are the physicians in some respects because they don't believe that it's possible. I yes. mean, I think most, cause you think, well, I have five minutes with this person. There's no way I can get this person to stop. You know, I'll be lucky if I convince them to stop smoking much less, you know, eat better or exercise every day would <laughs> a, I might not be doing myself, <laughs> but, but, but also the fact that, um, you know, you don't have much time with people with just the way medicine is practiced for most places. So, well, 
we could go on for a long time, John. This is this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. I recommend anyone uh, who finds this interesting to get a hold of the book. There are a ton more examples in there. We didn't even talk about, is it Depew? And I think that's how you pronounce it, Depew, yes. with their metal, me, yes. uh, metal implants. Uh, so we're not just picking on pharmaceutical companies. I think everyone has sort of the same economic incentives. They sort of behave the same way. So the device in, uh, manufacturers and Certainly, there's lots in cardi- cardiovascular health of pacemakers and stents and all those things. I mean, you talk, listen to those guys talk about that. And there's a trove of stuff that could be talked about. But uh, you can get a lot of that information, a lot more stuff in the book, too. Again, the book is, if I find my notes, Sickening. And uh, it's available. You can find a link at the paradox.com slash 172. If people want to get a hold of you, John, what's the best way? Are you on social media? or I, I haven't been. Um, my email is uh, John underscore Abramson, A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N, at hms.harvard.edu. And if they want to get a hold of me, I would be happy to get an email and discuss issues. You really struck me as a guy who's on TikTok, so that surprised me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe we should talk offline. I I may have to uh, move down a generation here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Pleasure's mine. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.